I think Joanna is more effective than my method of uh, calling people's attention. Uh, Joanna, as I believe everyone here knows, is the past director of the University of Texas Press. Having said that, there's only one other thing that I want to say by way of introduction, and that is that the first Adventures with Britannia was published by Joanna Hitchcock. Now, little did she know that it was going to grow on to uh, half a dozen other uh, volumes of effervescent Adventures with Britannia. Uh, we also want to welcome Philippa back. Everyone's very glad to see you, Philippa. And Joanna, I think, apart from calling people's attention to the, uh, the sheet that gives you a lot of information, that we'll simply turn it over to you to talk about the Titanic. On April the 10th, 1912, the White Star Liner, RMS Titanic, steamed out of Southampton Harbor, bound for New York on her maiden voyage. Among the roughly 1,300 passengers aboard were my cousin Noel, her maid, Roberta Maione, and her husband's cousin, Gladys Cherry. Her parents accompanied them as far as Cherbourg on their way to their chateau in Normandy. Lucy Noel Martha was born in 1878 on Christmas Day, that's why she was called Noel. She was the only child of Thomas Dyer Edwards, a wealthy businessman, and his wife, Clementina Georgina Lucy Drummond Villiers, a descendant of the Dukes of Perth and Melford. My father used to refer to Noel's parents as Unky Punky and Aunt Ty. <laughs> Noel divided her childhood between their three residences, there she is, Prinage Abbey, their country house in the Cotswolds, a former medieval monastery, the French chateau I just mentioned, and a townhouse near my grandmother's family in Kensington. She and my grandmother were first cousins. She and my grandmother were first cousins, but they grew up together like sisters, both being only children. My father, Noel's godson, was named for her. In 1900, Noel married Norman Evelyn Leslie, 19th Earl of Rothes, who at 22 was head of one of the oldest peerages in Scotland, and in 1906 was elected one of the representative peers for Scotland in the House of Lords in Westminster. In 1904, they moved to um, Leslie House on the 10,000 acre estate in Fife, which had been in his family since the 17th century. They shared a, a wide range of sporting interests, from horseback riding and hunting to cricket and boating, and were popular figures both at home and in London society, frequently attracting attention in the gossip press. In the Edwardian aristocracy, where marriage and love were often unrelated, the Earl and Countess were referred to as a most unfashionably <coughs> devoted couple. 
there are very few young couples in Scottish society more admired than the handsome Lord and Lady Rothes, observed a reporter for New York World. Described as, quote, small, blue-eyed, and very gentle and appealing in manner, Noel was known for her bright personality, her graceful dancing, and the diligence with which she helped organize lavish entertainments patronized by English royalty and members of the aristocracy. She was actively engaged in philanthropic work throughout the United Kingdom, most notably in assisting the Red Cross with fundraising, and she also trained as a nurse. Before the Titanic left Southampton, Noel told a reporter that she was going to the United States to join her husband, who was thinking of buying an orange grove on the West Coast. Asked how she felt about, quote, leaving London society for a California fruit farm, <laughs> Noel replied, I am full of joyful expectation. <laughs> By the fourth day at sea, Noel and her husband's cousin Gladys had settled into a happy routine of walking briskly round the boat deck, taking tea in the veranda cafe, listening to the band in the lounge, mingling with the other first-class passengers, and dining and dancing in the palm court in the evenings. The Titanic was steaming across a still dark sea at 22 and a half knots on Sunday, April the 14th, when at 11.40 p.m. the lookout suddenly saw a large dark object ahead. It was, quote, calm, clear, and bitterly cold, in the words of Walter Lord, whose 1936 book, A Night to Remember, remains the classic account of the final hours of the Titanic. There was no moon, but the cloudless sky blazed with stars. The Atlantic was like polished plate glass. People later said they had never seen it so smooth. End quote. The lookout had been warned to watch for icebergs, but the ship's binoculars had been mislaid. Until that moment, he'd noticed nothing unusual. Immediately, he banged the crow's nest bell three times and telephoned the bridge. The engines were quickly reversed, and the ship turned sharply to port. Instead of making direct impact, the Titanic seemed to graze along the side of the berg sprinkling ice fragments onto the forward deck. Captain Edward Smith immediately summoned Thomas Andrews, the ship's builder, and the two of them went on a tour of inspection. They found that the iceberg had ripped into the watertight compartments on the starboard side, tearing a 300-foot gash below the waterline. The Titanic was designed to float if four of her 16 watertight compartments were flooded. But water had already flowed into the fifth, and they both knew within 25 minutes of hitting the iceberg that there was no hope of her staying afloat. From now on, the first person accounts I am reading are from the letter Noel wrote to her parents from the rescue ship. In first class cabin B77, Noel was awakened by a slight jar followed by a distant grating sound. She glanced at the clock. The time was 11.46 p.m. I wondered at the sudden quiet of the ship, Noel wrote. My cousin Gladys, who shared my room, was not even awakened. 
I opened the door and saw a steward who said we had struck some ice. When Gladys asked if there was any danger, the steward replied, oh no, we have just grazed the ice and it does not amount to anything. Noel was curious to see what an iceberg looked like, so they went up on deck. On the way, they ran into a fellow passenger who told them, the watertight compartments must surely hold. It is impossible for anything serious to happen. But, Noel wrote, as we were returning to our stateroom, my maid met us and said water was pouring into the racket court near her cabin. She thought something dreadful was going to happen. We struck the iceberg at quarter to 12 on Sunday night. At first, and until nearly one o'clock, no one realized any danger or really knew what had happened. Then the orders came to be dressed and to have life belts on in 10 minutes. Myone behaved splendidly. I sent her up at once when the order came and she wanted to wait for us, which I of course did not allow, but it was grand at a moment like that. I just had time to pour out some brandy, give my only some and Gladys and myself and hurriedly dressed. They put on woolen suits over which Noel wrapped a full length ermine coat. <laughs> then no one seemed to know where the life belts were kept. And a strange man found ours for us and we then tied on his for him and we all shook hands and t told each other that it would not be long before we met again, as we all thought there were plenty of boats, little knowing that there were only 16 and that there were nearly 3,000 people on board. I'm sure it's unnecessary, the man said, to put the life belts on, but Noel insisted that they obey the order. She put a small brandy flask in one pocket and a strand of 300-year-old pearls around her neck, a precious heirloom that she had worn at dinner just a few hours earlier, leaving her other jewelry behind in a satinwood box. As she went by, a purser who was urging everyone to stop standing around called out to her, hurry little lady, there is not much time. I'm glad you didn't ask me if you could go back for your jewels, as some ladies have. As soon as he'd given the order to uncover the lifeboats and muster the passengers. Captain Smith told his chief wireless operator, Jack Phillips, to send out the distress call. Jack had been having a rough day, besieged by first-class passengers wanting to send messages to their families, enough to overload the, at the best of times, unreliable equipment, and he'd not paid attention to the six messages from nearby ships warning of the ice field ahead. By 11 p.m. he was, in his own words, all done in. He had finally managed to make contact with the nearest land station, Cape Race in Newfoundland, when he was interrupted by a message from the Californian, a British ship that was only 20 miles away. Say, old man, we are stopped and surrounded by ice. Exasperated and exhausted, Jack could only tap out, shut up, shut up, we are busy. In response to which, the operator on the Californian turned the wireless off. And was in bed by the time Jack sent out what was then the standard distress call, CQD,
before switching for the first time to the new international call, SOS. At last, he managed to make contact with another British steamer, the Carpathia, whose operator cabled back to tell him she was 58 miles away and steaming toward the Titanic as fast as possible. It wasn't until an hour and a half uh, after she hit the iceberg that, that they actually started loading the lifeboats. There was no public address system, so it took a while for the stewards to go from cabin to cabin, rouse the passengers, quite a few of whom uh, were asleep by then, and get them into their life belts and up on deck. There were 16 wooden lifeboats, each 30 foot long and nine foot wide, built to carry 65 passengers. But there had been no lifeboat drill. The number of lifeboats required on a passenger liner at that time was based on her tonnage, not on the number of people aboard. And Bruce Ismay, chairman of the White Star Line, had ordered the number to be reduced from the designer's original specifications so that passengers would have more room to stroll on an uncluttered deck. All the boats together could carry 1,178 people. This Sunday night, there were 2,207 people on board. Up on the boat deck, an officer shouted through a megaphone, ordering the ladies to come forward. Women and children first was then the law of the sea. By then, the Titanic was listing slightly, but most passengers still believed that the ship was safer than any of the lifeboats, and he had to repeat the order several times before anyone moved. Gladys Cherry thought they were doing a foolish thing to leave that big, safe ship. By then, crew members below were beginning to understand the true situation, but on the boat deck, only the captain and Mr. Andrews knew the full extent of the damage. We stood close to the, Asper, uh, to the Astors, that's John Jacob and his pregnant young wife, Madeline, Noel wrote. Colonel Astor put his wife in a chair. She was quite calm. The last I saw of Colonel Astor was when he stood by his wife trying to comfort her. Noel spoke next with a young Spanish lady, Maria Panasco, niece of Spain's prime minister, who was on her honeymoon. She was torn away from her husband just as I reached the top deck. He put her into my arms and asked me to take care of her, and it was awful making her leave him. But one's only feeling was to prevent any panic or scene and obey the captain's orders. It was like a terrible nightmare. Of course, we had no man belonging to us, thank God, but for the people who had, it was too ghastly. Two or three wives stayed with their husbands, and it seems too cruel to separate people unless there are children. Any more ladies, any more ladies, the captain shouted. Then he handed Noel, Gladys, and Roberta into lifeboat number eight and ordered it to be lowered only half full at 1.10 a.m. The goodbye was terrible, wrote Noel. Captain Smith stood next to me as we got in and told Tom Jones, a seaman, to row straight for, for those ship lights over there, leave the passengers aboard, and return as soon as possible. Goodbye, he said. Remember, you are British. <laughs> Noel was impressed by the captain's great calmness and courage. She could see the lights plainly, 
though it was not clear what they were, and she was soothed by the belief that the ship would pick them up. Surely, she told Gladys, our boats will be able to do double duty in ferrying passengers to the help that gleams so near. Able seaman Thomas Jones was the only sailor on board the lifeboat. The two other men, a steward and a cook, had been let on as crew, but they didn't know how to row and set the boat spinning in a circle. Some of the women were hysterical. My first impression was that we must keep our heads about us, Noel wrote. Above all things, she, she told herself, we must not lose our self-control. A reporter in New York later quoted Tom Jones. There was a woman in my boat, as was a woman, he said, straightening up in her honor as his eyes lit up and his speech became animated. She was the Countess of Rothes, and let me tell you about her. I was in command, but I had to row, and I wanted someone at the tiller. When I saw the way she was carrying herself, and I heard the quiet, determined way she spoke to the others, I knew she was more of a man than any we had on board. <laughs> and I put her in command. I put her at the tiller. Lights were blazing from the Titanic's portholes and distress signals shooting up from the deck as they rowed away. The white flares could be seen from the Californian, which was only 20 miles away, and a young seaman reported to her captain that he could see a giant liner stopped dead in the water. That will be the Titanic, her captain replied, on her maiden voyage. Meanwhile, on board the Titanic, Captain Smith walked around the ship after all the lifeboats had been launched and released the crew from their duties. The assistant radio oper operator who survived reported that the captain entered their shack at 2.05 a.m. Men, he said, you have done your full duty. You can do no more. Now it's every man for himself. That's the way it is at this kind of time. The occupants of lifeboat number eight could still hear the melodies of the eight-man band, which had been playing ragtime, as they watched the ship listing to port until the bow was almost completely submerged. The Titanic was now going down very quickly. Although it was impossible for them to see the final moments in any detail, they were able to make out some 1,500 people crowded at the stern, huddled together. The most awful part, Noel reported, was seeing the rows of portholes vanishing one by one. Maria Panasco began to scream for her husband. So Noel handed the tiller to Gladys and moved to sit beside her. I had her in my arms most of the first part of the night. Her maid, a Spanish peasant and quite incapable, was useless, so terrified, Noel wrote. Mercifully, I managed to prevent her seeing or hearing when the steamer sank, as she was nearly mad. The other English and American women in, in our boat, with one exception, were splendid, and we had 24 of them, one seaman, and only two stewards who did not even know how to row. Then came the horrifying screams of more than a thousand people struggling in vain to keep alive in the sub-freezing water. Most of them didn't drown, they froze to death. After their cries had faded away, 
there was a terrible silence. Noel was overwhelmed by a feeling she could identify only as indescribable loneliness. Some of us wanted to return to the boat to try and pick up people, but the majority were against this and said we should be sucked in by the sinking ship, so we had to give it up, Noel reported. Ladies, said Seaman Jones, if any of us are saved, remember, I wanted to go back. I would rather drown with them than leave them. The ghastliness of our feelings, thought Noel, never can be told. Gladys Cherry expanded on this in a letter she wrote to Tom Jones from New York. I feel I must write and tell you how splendidly you took charge of our boat on the fatal night. There were only four English people in it, my cousin Lady Rothes, her maid, you and myself, and I think you were wonderful. The dreadful regret I shall always have, and I know you share with me, is that we ought to have gone back to see whom we could pick up. But, if you remember, there was only an American lady, my cousin, self, and you, who wanted to return. I could not hear the discussion very clearly, as I was at the tiller, but everyone forward and the three men refused. But I shall always remember your words. Gladys steered the boat nearly all night to let the men row, Noel told her parents. Then four of us took turns. One American woman rowed without stopping for five hours. I rode three hours and my maid as much. The American woman was Margaret Swift, whom Noel later described as magnificent, not only in her attitude, but in the whole way in which she works. Walter Lord adds, while they were pulling at the oars, another American woman noted with pride that as she rode next to the Countess of Rothes, further down the boat, her maid was rowing next to the Countess's maid. The cold was intense and we were surrounded by icebergs that we expected would be on us at any moment, Noel continued. Even heavy fur coats were not enough to keep them warm and many of the women were lightly dressed. For two hours we rode toward a distant light, which was never any nearer. Then we saw a port light vanish and the masthead lights grow dimmer until they disappeared. The small oil lamp in the lifeboat lacked kerosene and went out quickly. And the only available light came from a small bulb in a cane whose owner kept waving it about, which was sometimes helpful and sometimes confusing. They found themselves lost in the dark without drinking water or compass. Quote, a handful of people in an open boat faced with a fate worse than drowning, Roberta Maioni later recorded. The endless hours in the dark on the water were the worst, Noel wrote, as one had time to think of everyone that we never expected to see again. Then at last, in the far distance, Jones detected a bright moving object that seemed to be headed directly toward them. He asked Noel if she could see it. At first she couldn't, but as it drew nearer, they saw it was a searchlight on the prow of a liner. The Carpathia was steaming in their direction from the southeast, firing rockets. They turned and began rowing toward her. It took them another hour to reach the ship, and as dawn began to break, all the lifeboats were headed in the same direction. I tried to keep in touch with the other boats by shouting, so when the Carpathia came in sight, we were not much scattered, Noel wrote. To keep up our spirits, Jones later reported, we sang as we rowed, all of us. They started out with 
Pull for the Shore, followed by one of Noel's favorite hymns. Lead kindly light amid the encircling gloom, lead thou me on. The night is dark and I am far from home, lead thou me on. Then, Jones added, as we approached the ship, we stopped singing and prayed. Noel summarized their experiences in her letter to her parents. I can never, never tell you all the horrors we have been through since Sunday. We got into the boat a little before 1.30, and it was not until 5 or 5.30 that we caught sight of this steamer, and at first could not believe she could be really there and that we might be rescued. The sea was very calm till daybreak, and then began to get up a little, and by the time we managed to row to this steamer, it was rather rough for small boats and we dashed repeatedly against the side of this boat and were then hauled up on a little plank and rope. I fainted when I was taken on board, which was stupid, but I think it was the strain of the last hour rowing and the cold. And I remember nothing after I was put into the swing and hauled up till I found myself on the dining room sofa with the doctor pouring hot stuff down my throat and someone rubbing me. You cannot imagine the goodness of all these people, Noel wrote about the Carpathia's crew. They came at full speed to the rescue, all among the icebergs, and at great risk to themselves, over 60 miles under three hours. The captain told me they got the message four minutes before their Marconi place was closed for the night, and he then had all the crew up and told them that he left it to them to do their best that night. We are over 700 survivors on board and of course have nothing with us but the clothes we managed to put on, some of us very little. Another passenger described how people were in this strange assortment of undress costume, some in ball gowns, many in night dresses, and only a few fully clothed. Makeshift hospitals were set up on board and Noel and Gladys assisted the doctors as they tended to the survivors. I think that one in the middle with, might be Noel. We're not sure. Noel was one of the few upper-class ladies to have been trained as a nurse, which qualified her to apply braces and bandages and administer medications. She gave special attention to the men who had managed to get into lifeboats after jumping off the Titanic and whose legs and feet were still numb from having been in the icy water. There is plenty to do now, helping the doctor and with the tiny children feeding them and letting the mothers rest. And I find my French very useful. There are so many who know no English. This morning, the doctor sent for me to be with a French woman who was quite frantic and we were afraid, afraid to leave her. It took two hours to calm her as she declared she would kill herself, but is quiet now, but must not be left. The second and third class are easier to quiet and manage and are so grateful for any little gift or attention. One steerage woman has lost seven children out of eight and her husband. But oh, the horror of it all can never be told. And those fearful cries when she sank will never go out of my head. And I am one of the lucky ones. We are in a fog now, so I'm afraid we shall be late in New York and we so long to arrive. Most of the people are so splendid, though a few have broken down. Gladys has been busy distri distributing the garments we can collect and make to the children. We have made great friends, of course, with some of the people, and one marvels at their heroism, though one did not really feel frightened, 
and mercifully there were so many to help and see to. We are hoping against hope for new, more news of survivors tomorrow, but the captain told me privately he had none, so one says nothing. The doctor here is so kind and helpful to us both. By the end of the first full day, the Carpathia's crew was marveling at the woman they dubbed the plucky little countess. You have made yourself famous by rowing the boat, a stewardess told her. I hope not, Noel said. I have done nothing. After three days, they reached New York Harbor, and while the first and second class passengers disembarked, Noel stayed on board to help with the steerage passengers, arranging for an ambulance to transfer one of them to New York Hospital at her expense. Her husband, Rothes, was waiting for her when she finally walked down the gangway. R looked awful when we arrived, poor darling. You never saw anything so impressive as the huge, silent crowds. At last, I am safe and sound, Noel cabled her parents. I am resting. I am so tired. Thank God I am here. The London Daily Telegraph reported that Lady Rothes was at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel under the care of a physician. It is not so much exposure and shock which have made her ill as the effects of her hard labor in pulling at the oars. A few days later, she wrote to my grandmother, my dearest May, thank you both for your wires. I send you just a few lines as, though I've been really pretty well, two days ago I got a chill and have had to be in bed and I'm only just up again. The doctor here is very fussy and won't let me do uh, much of, of much, as of course we are all feeling the strain a good bit now. If you ask mother, she will show you my first letter. I cannot write that awful description again, and it would be difficult to explain to anyone how one still feels, all incapable of any emotion on the subject. One is so stunned with the horror of it all. I have the little Spanish widow here with me. She is wonderful. She knew no one in America, but of course has friends now and clings very much to me. Her husband put her into my arms on the deck just before we got into the boats, and I promised to take care of her. I knew neither of them before. It's so cruel separating the men and women so much, but one must obey orders or return to one's cabin as Mr. and Mrs. Strauss did together. Gladys was wonderful all the time, and so was my maid. The doctor won't let me travel yet, as my heart is being tiresome, not serious, so write me a line here. I'm getting some clothes slowly. Of course, we lost everything except the few clothes and fur coats we had on. Luckily, too, for us, life belts are warm things. I hope you're all flourishing. I'm longing for news of my boys. How is your mother? Much love to you all from Noel. My grandmother had first learned the news on April the 15th from a billboard outside the village store in Rye in Sussex, where she was on holiday with her family. Giant liner sinks. That evening at 6.12, she received the first of three telegrams, Marconi's. Nothing official yet. Globe newspaper just published says wireless received at Halifax states all passengers safely taken off Titanic. Then a little later, Titanic proceeding Halifax, own steam, all passengers transferred Parisian and Carpathia. And another, Virginian proceeding along with Titanic, 
to Halifax, no casualties. But at 9.30 that night, her father cabled, very anxious news, alarming in paper. Nothing more until 10.46 the next morning, the 16th, when Granny received the first of three more cables. <coughs> Countess Rothes saved. Titanic, 1442 saved, Lady Rothes among them. And Noel safe on board Carpathia. On the 18th, my grandparents cabled Noel, sympathy, thankfulness, May, George. The press people here are really awful. One is never free, and they are always printing imaginary interviews and photos of you, which is maddening, Noel wrote to my grandmother. To set the record straight, she agreed to give one non-exclusive interview two days after the Carpathia docked. After that, she never spoke publicly about the Titanic again. But that didn't stop stories about her from appearing in newspapers on both sides of the Atlantic. Headings, plucky little countess, Countess of Roth's bravery. One article headed, Ladies at the Oars, quoted a fellow passenger, the countess is an expert oarswoman and thoroughly at home in the water. She practically took command of our boat. When it was found that the seamen could not row skillfully, several women took their place with the countess at the oars and rowed for a turn, while the weak, unskilled stewards sat quietly in the end of the boat. <laughs> the Times of London. Several stewardesses spoke very highly of Lady Rothes, declaring that she behaved like a heroine, both on board the ship and in the boat. And after they reached the Carpathia, she set about cutting out clothes for the babies who were rescued. Noel did not welcome the publicity. To her mind, there was nothing brave about what she did. She saw it as a team effort and always ascribed equal credit to the other women who helped row and navigate. It was able seaman Tom Jones, she said, who acted nobly. She also paid tribute to the many men who had not survived the sinking. They were brave men all that stood back so the women should have at least a chance to live. Their memories should be held sacred in the mind of all the world forever. Noel and her husband escaped the attention by traveling to California, where they spent some days recuperating. <laughs> Giving up on the idea of buying an orange grove, they returned to Scotland, where Noel resumed her life, a chatelain, philanthropist, and mother to her two boys. Unlike many of the survivors whose lives were permanently scarred, 10, including Frederick Fleet, the lookout, later committed suicide, Noel did not let her experience on the Titanic define her later life. Gladys Cherry was more willing to talk about their experience and even to joke years later when asked whether she'd crossed on the Titanic. Part way, she said. <laughs> During the First World War, in which Rothes served, he and Noel converted a wing of Leslie House into a hospital for soldiers invalided from the front. And Noel, Noel worked with the Red Cross as a nurse. They picked up their life again after the war, and Rothes resumed his responsibilities in the House of Lords until 1923 but he had been twice wounded and never fully recovered his health. He died in March 1927, 
And in December of that year, Noel married an old family friend, Colonel Claude McPhee, and went to live with him in a village in Gloucestershire. They kept their ties with Scotland, though, and my uncle took these photos during a holiday in Argyll in 1936. And here's a picture of her in her later years, as I remember her. Noel rarely spoke about her experience, even to the family. But my father told me that a year after the sinking, when she was dining out with friends in London, she suddenly experienced the awful feeling of cold and intense horror that she associated with the Titanic. For a moment, she couldn't imagine why. But then she realized that the orchestra was playing the Barcarolle from the Tales of Hoffman, which she had last heard on the Titanic on the night of the sinking. And she never made peace with the fact that lifeboat number eight had not returned to look for survivors, something that her grandson later called the great sadness of her life. Tom Jones was, a, was the son of a Welsh fisherman, and the only thing he and Noel had in common before their shared experience in the lifeboat was their age. She was 33 and he was 34. But soon after she got home, she, Noel sent him a silver pocket watch engraved with her name and the date of the sinking. And later, he presented her with the brass number eight from the lifeboat attached to a piece of wood. Years later, she said, I still treasure it. They exchanged Christmas cards every year and remained friends until her death. Noel did agree to be interviewed by David Astor, the publisher of the British Sunday paper, The Observer, and a cousin of John Jacob in 1956. By then, she was 77 years old and suffering from heart trouble, and she died peacefully at home just a week before the scheduled interview. Her memorial plaque in St. Mary's Church, Fairford, ends with these words. Holiness is an infinite compassion for others. Greatness is to take the common things of life and walk truly among them. Happiness is a great love and much serving. Thank you.